This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Once again, nurses are out on strike. It's breaking all of us. Morale is so low at the moment, trying to help each other, but you can't stop someone from drowning when you're drowning yourself. The government is responding by pushing through strike legislation that could stop some workers from withdrawing their labour. Meanwhile, in Westminster, Rishi Sunak seems to have started another battle, this time with the Scottish government. This is a UK government that sees an opportunity to stoke a culture war, but in doing so, undermining the Scottish Parliament, and we will defend it. Two fights for Rishi Sunak and his government, but how will each of them play out? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. It's Wednesday morning, it is freezing cold, and we're outside University College Hospital on the Euston Road in London, looking at the sort of up-close reality of the nurses being on strike. This is the first day of a two-day strike. And there are scores, if not hundreds, of nurses standing outside. Over there, there's a table with sort of snacks on it. And uh, every sort of 20 or 30 seconds, some other vehicle on the road here honks their horn in support. They're sort of defiant and spirited. and This isn't about some technicality or... You know, it goes beyond like paying conditions and all that. These people have got a, an amazing moral point to make. Okay, tell me your name again, sorry. My name's Holly. So if this were a normal work day for you, tell me what you'd be doing. So I work on the acute medical unit. We work 12 and a half hour shifts, um, looking after, after between five to eight patients, depending on uh, how good or bad the staffing is that day and that they're cases that present as emergencies right yeah. you're dealing with like the illest people yeah. basically yeah. apart from ICU Strokes, we've got the sickest patients attacks, kidney failure all of that right yeah why do you do it why are you a nurse because I still after all of the rubbish we've been through I think that people are good and you see the very very worst of people working in the NHS but you also see the best of people you see human relationships that you wouldn't see anywhere else. You see people come together, and I do think that despite everything, I think people are good. And tell me about your your life sort of in the round. I ask you that mostly, I suppose, in the context of money, right? Yeah. And how much you're paid and how that affects your life. 
it's tough it is really tough I don't come from a wealthy family anyway I'm one of seven children and at the moment with the cost of living and everything you're probably going to see more than half of my monthly paycheck goes towards my rent Um, I only look after myself I don't have any dependents you see my my colleagues who have like children to look after doing so many extra shifts just to try and make ends meet and they're exhausted and you can see it in them they're sleeping on their lunch breaks just trying to catch a couple of extra minutes sleep because they're knackered everyone is this strike happens to coincide with this awful crisis in the nhs which you'll see that very vividly in acute medicine yeah so that that sort of leads on to another question which is how is how is your working life compared to how it was i don't know six months or a year ago or two years ago It's really, really hard. And I think we were a COVID ward during COVID times. And I think a lot of us were quite, you know, affected by that. And so we're all still sort of trying to process the trauma of that whilst going into some of the hardest NHS austerity that we've ever seen in this country. We're having higher patient caseloads than ever before. We're having sicker patients than ever before. People are more frail than we've ever seen before. It's really, really tough. More often than not, we won't get a lunch break. If we do get a lunch break, it's not your full hour. You might get 20 minutes to, you know, scram your lunch down and then go back to work. I have shifts where I stay for hours afterwards trying to finish up all my documentation because I don't have time to do it on my actual shift. And none of that gets recognised, obviously. You don't get paid overtime. If you leave late, you leave late, and that's on you. Looking back recently, was there ever a... a a moment when you sort of reached a, a tipping point and thought I, I and more to the point the hospital and the NHS I suppose can't go on like this yeah I mean I, it could be anything but yeah I did have a shift recently that was really difficult that day I stayed on the ward until 10.30 and my shift is supposed to finish at 8.30 and I sat in an office to finish my notes and I cried it's really really hard and how do you feel about politics because the only, you know, the only answer to this will involve politicians, right? Yeah. Um, I, I won't be around a bush. It's time for the Tories to get out. <laughs> do you think you'll be, in, hypothetically, in like five or ten years' time, do you think, as a matter of instinct, do you think you'll be a nurse still? I feel like I don't know if I can imagine myself doing anything else, but I don't know how much longer I can keep doing a job that is breaking me every day I go. Is that bad? God, I mean, that's quite, a, that's quite a, a sobering word to use, that it's breaking you. It is, and it's, it's breaking all of us. You can see it in, in if, if, when I go on the wards, morale is so low at the moment, and I can see it in all my colleagues, and we're trying to help each other, but you can't stop someone from drowning when you're drowning yourself. So, Anna, you're on the picket line with your baby. Yes. Who's very young baby, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, he's 20 weeks old. Wow, okay. Uh, tell me about your working life, what you do and what it involves. So, I am a nurse educator on the acute medical unit here at UCH, and that means that my job is I'm in charge of um, the education for the nurses on the acute medical unit. And prior to that, I was a staff nurse on the acute medical unit. Okay, so tell me what that involves. Like, like your working day, what do you do? 
uh, I come in, I drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> and then I try and get nurses to come and do training and education. I'm trying to teach them about the sort of the latest things that we're doing. During COVID, for example, we were involved in doing a lot of training on NIV and trying to upskill the nurses and all the latest technology that was coming out, all the sort of the latest CPAP machines and stuff. The funding's just changed recently, actually. We used to get a lot of funding and our CPD funding has been cut. So we used to get more and now we get £1,000 for each nurse for three years. And that's meant to include all your basic training for all your nurses as well and then all the specialist stuff that we have to do. £1,000 so. a nurse for three years? £1,000 a nurse for three years, yes. It's not enough. Okay. Yeah, it's not enough. What you see every day in the midst of this crisis that the NHS is in right now, how does that look compared to the NHS of six months or a year ago? How bad is it? You know, it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's like you come into work every day and it's exhausting and people are tired. And again, you know, I, I work every day and I do sort of more nine to five flexible hours. But I know for the, my nurses on the ward that come in and do their night shifts and the day shifts, it's hard to come in. And on top of that, they do bank shifts because they're not getting paid enough uh, to top up. So a bank shift is when you do an extra shift. You're rotated to work 13 shifts in a month, essentially in a four-week period. Well, that's when people just end up working impossible hours, yeah, right? Yeah, so we've got, I know for example, we've got some HCAs who are our healthcare assistants and some of our nurses that work sort of five, six, 12-hour shifts a week. And it's, you know, you look at these people and you're like, this is terrifying, you're exhausted. And yeah, I can't stop them. I can't tell them they shouldn't do that because how can I tell them to stop working? They won't get to pay their bills. A lot of nurses are leaving to go and do sort of more nine to five jobs because they don't feel like they can give safe patient care. Wow, you have those conversations with people. Yeah, yeah, I know people. I've, there's people here that have left that have gone to more nine to five nursing jobs because they're like, I can't deliver the care I want to. I'm frustrated. I'm leaving people in, you know, like not washed, not cleaned. I'm saving their lives, but I'm not giving care, and that's the difference. And nurses want to give care as well as save lives. Like, you know, I can keep this person alive, but are they going to come up with bed sores? Are they going to, you know, like lie in urine and, and, and stuff for hours because I just don't have the, the manpower to, to, to look after them properly? Well, that sort of sits there every day. Why are you a nurse? Why do you do it? It's a really great job. It's really great. You have great people, great teamwork. You get real huge job satisfaction. And know. I'm so glad you're doing it, right? <laughs> In case anything happens to me and mine. Yeah, oh, but at the same time, it doesn't sound like a great job to me. I think, and I think that's the problem. You know what? You're, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. It was a great job, and now it's 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 hard. Do you, do you think? Do you think that the public are on your side broadly? I I, I hope it can. I think the public support us. I hope so. <laughs> that's why it's such a huge moment, right? Because you know. It's nurses, that's what I do, I can't even articulate it more than that. It's nurses, for God's sake, it's nurses. Yeah, right? it's literally, it's the people that like wipe your ass when you're in hospital. I don't mean to be funny, like, like we clip your nails and wipe your bum and like hold your hand when you're being given bad news. It's, it's not, it's, it's, they're good people. <laughs> so the guy you can hear right now leading the chant outside the hospital, we're going to talk to him. So tell me about your working life. Like most days, what what kind of things happen from morning to night? So uh, in critical care, we look after the sickest patients in the hospital. So those people uh, who stop breathing or their uh, kidneys not working. So anybody who needs organ support, uh, that's the kind of patients we are looking after. So what we are seeing every single year, we are recruiting a lot of people from overseas. We are failing to recruit from here because we can't attract uh, our nurses from here because uh, the paid simply doesn't attract anybody to join or stay in work. Uh, so the people who are leaving are the people who are most experienced. We are seeing resignation letters in which people clearly says the cost of living crisis with this pay, we can't uh, stay at work. Why yeah. do you do it? Why are you a nurse? 
I am an ass because um, I want to look after patients. I want to do some good for the um, community and I love caring for patients. I was recruited from India uh, 12 years ago and out of the 10 people who were recruited as the same cohort, only two people sadly staying in NHS. Whoa, 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 hold on a minute. Yeah. So there was a group of how many of you were recruited from India? Ten. Ten. The other eight, um, some of them left for Australia where they will get double the amount that they get here or um, some left for private. So you said that you're a sort of senior nurse and that you manage people yeah. and one of the nurses that we spoke to earlier basically said she was at breaking point every day. So you must have nurses that you manage, that you look after, that feel like that as well. And I just wonder how that makes you feel. I feel really like, you know, crying some days, like, you know, um, sitting there and listening to life stories where, like, you know, if the pay is delayed by one day, people won't be able to come to work because they don't have even the best fare to get to work. Some people uh, start their day five o'clock in the morning, taking four different buses to get here to avoid really high tube uh, fares. So I think uh, the government has broken the social contract. We are looking after the community, but we are not getting the same support. So sadly, people are leaving. A lot of people are going to other countries. So we are becoming a training school, a cheap training school for other healthcare systems. Usually I'm like, oh, it's quite complicated, you know. It's not as simple as you think. It is as simple as you think. It's nurses, for God's sake, right? Nurses are on strike, you know. They can't afford to, to heat their homes and feed themselves, right? They're working in impossible conditions, often, you know, over impossible hours. And like all really big, symbolic, important strikes, you know, this is, it's about the present, but clearly it's also about the, it's very much about the future, isn't it? It's about how do we, how can we go on like this? And what needs to change? I suppose in the minds of certain politicians or media people, there's a stereotype of strikers, isn't there? They're like sort of hardened male very often, you know. Would go and strike at the drop of a hat and all these cliches you hear. And obviously it's not like that at all. Right, we're now walking along Euston Road a bit further to the national headquarters of Unison, the Public Services Union to talk to the General Secretary, someone right in the thick of all this. Where are you from in Scotland? Glasgow. Where in Glasgow? I was born and brought up in Drumchapel, which is one of the big council estates, and then I moved to Maryhill. Christina McInerney is the General Secretary of Unison, the union that represents people working in the public sector, currently the UK's largest trade union, it says here. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So talking of which, who are you representing who right now is in the midst of a dispute? Reel them off. Okay, so <laughs> I hope I can remember them all. Uh, just now we, we've got a number of our uh, NHS members on strike, which includes ambulance workers and uh, also a few hospitals around the country. We've also got NICE, you know, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. They voted for strike action. Uh, environment Agency, which is taking strike action today, and we have higher education members on strike. We've got about another 15 groups that we are currently reballoting that we think will get over the line this time. Which so, includes which kind which of people? Will, more ambulance workers, 
uh, more NHS workers and um, blood and transplant. You meet and talk to senior Conservative ministers, right? Steve Barclay, Grant Shapps, I dare say. What What's it like? So, uh, yeah, I've met um, Steve Barclay. I mean, he's a politician. He, I'm sure, cares about the job he does. Um, my impression is he's probably hampered by diktat from the Treasury uh, telling him and other departmental ministers that the purse remains tightly closed, which is really unhelpful because I think at some point they'll have to do a deal with us or... I mean, the NHS is an absolute crisis and it's not the strikes that are causing it, but the strikes don't make it any easier. How much do you think about tensions to do with the danger of overplaying your hand as a union? You know, strikes inconvenience people. It so happens for all sorts of reasons, some of which is to do with the pandemic and the fact we're not quite the country that the Conservative Party seems to think we are. There's a lot of public sympathy for people on strike now. That might not last forever, right? So when I was on a picket line last week, without exception, people were saying to me, do you think the government will move? Oh, it'd be really great if we could get a deal because they don't want to be on strike. You know, they've joined the ambulance service to do a job. They don't want to be on strike. And the other thing is they are still coming off picket lines to go and deal with emergencies. And it's by demonstrating that that we're able to keep... Uh, the public on site. But I think the public can see that it's not the strikes that's causing the problems. Um, Legislation, as we both know, is going through Parliament at the moment to make striking in a lot of the occupations we've been talking about even harder to the point, actually, that some people, if you take the legislation, it's where it will end up getting sacked if they try and go on strike, right? What are you going to do about that in terms of resisting it? So we're putting together a plan in terms of um, a a legal strategy against it. So we're investigating this. We've got some of the top barristers in the country working with us. And I I suppose, you know, we're trying to make the Westminster government, and particularly Conservative MPs, when they talk about impact on the public, I think they forget that the public sector workers are the public. And almost everybody knows somebody who either works in the public sector or they work in the public sector, or they have a friend who works in the public sector. And this trying to demonise this group of workers, I, do, I just don't think is playing well with the, pub, the public. It, it's a serious attack on, on human rights, without a doubt. Right. On the, the question of the ongoing disputes, when does it end? Do you have an idea of that? Well, hopefully when we get an offer from the government that's accepted by members, that's when it would end. Um, but is part of you thinking this could go on for a long time? Well, I'm seriously hoping it doesn't. Um, what I'm hoping is that the government will behave like grown-ups and come into a room and sit down with us and start negotiating on pay. Because it's all very well to hide behind the pay review body in some of these sectors. I mean, they're doing it with teachers at the moment. That's all driven by the government and it's all driven by, I think, the Treasury saying this is the percentage you can go to, but no more than that. And so to pretend that we could sit in a room with somebody who's not the government to try and resolve this is just ludicrous. You have they have to be in the room. So they've sort of the the, conserv- the government have sort of seemed to have chosen their sort of bogeyman for want of a better word in the midst of all this. That's Mick Lynch, and he's used as a sort of byword for all trade unions and all trade union general secretaries. Right. I just wonder how you how you feel about that. I think Mick. Is a fantastic example of somebody who comes across, I think, on the media incredibly reasonable, who also knows this is his subject. 
He knows what's going on in the rail, the rail industry and he knows how his members feel. So I think they've picked the wrong target by going for him. Although I can, you know, the he maybe fits a certain stereotype as the of the male um, general secretary type thing. But actually, he's he's not like that at all, and he's a very considered person. And I I do worry that you know certain parts of the media try and lump us all together, you know, trade union barons and all this, you know. It's amazing that language is is still around. I thought as I was walking up here, I'm about to meet one of those union barons. <laughs> Union <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't ring true anymore when the biggest unions in the country, ours and Unite, are both led by women. Do you think the public uh, get that, that, that these cliches don't fit? I think if you hear people, I hope me and Sharon and, and uh, Gary Smith and, and Mick Lynch, I think we all come across as incredibly reasonable. <laughs> you know, we, we're not out to... Put bring down the government. That's not our, our role in society. Our role is to represent the people who deliver really essential services in this country. And I think that comes across. Comes across as well when you see the strikes up close, actually. Yeah. It's not fellas around braziers, right? Is it? Yeah. I've just been on a picket line with, and you know, 90% probably of the people on it were women. Really diverse. Yeah. Bunch of people. I mean, the public sector is like that. Your union is. You've got majority female membership. One, we have one million. We're one point three million members, and a million of them are women. And um, you know, we're the biggest women's organisation in this country. You wouldn't think it. The government don't consult us as a women's organisation, but we are. I mean, we you do still have braziers when it's really, really cold. When I was in, some, I was in some packet lines where there, are, but they they had to rush out and go down to B and Q to buy one and bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> We're now in the upper reporters' gallery of the Houses of Parliament. I've just got a cup of tea, and I'm sitting down with Pippa Creerar, the political editor of The Guardian, whose surname I've pronounced right, haven't I? Brilliant. I'm delighted. Finally, John. Big day for <laughs> Let's talk about strikes and the government's position on them. Um, do you think, I mean, it looks like they are, they're shifting somewhat. There is movement at the top. They're not quite as resolute and stubborn as they were, say, two or three weeks ago. There's been a very substantial shift over Christmas from when Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, Steve Barclay, the health secretary in particular, were saying, we'll meet with the unions and have a conversation with them, but it's not going to be about pay. Not this year's pay, not next year's pay, not any pay. And then over Christmas, after obviously some of the strikes had taken place, when public support held up, I think probably against the expectations of ministers and their advisors, they realised that they would need to budge a bit. So suddenly the door was open to inviting the unions in to discuss pay. And not just that, when it comes to health, it wasn't just future pay, so 23, 24. It was either a one-off payment or a backdated payment for this year, 22, 23. So this year is the important bit because the cost of living, living crisis is right now. It's right now that people are struggling to get by. But the strikes clearly show no sign of coming to an end. And Christina... Uh, McInnie, who we've just met, the General Secretary of Unison, says that actually the position hasn't changed, it's just the tone has shifted, right? I think think that's probably right. I mean, certainly thus far, despite opening the door to conversations, those conversations haven't reached any resolution. If you're talking about health strikes in particular, that Steve Barclay 
um, has been told by the Treasury that there's no extra money from central government coffers. So he no needs to find to, money. There's no resolution to the strike. Well, he says he can't find the money in his budget. So, so we're in a kind of like an impasse at the moment where the strikes will continue. The government is fighting internally about where the money comes from. They all say we recognise there has to be something more for now, but no one's prepared to pay for it. And I've heard things lately that are the very reverse of the kind of move that would um, end even some of the strikes. So I think over the weekend I was reading that Barclay had floated the idea that you'd have to have cuts elsewhere in the NHS budget to fund the pay rise. Jeremy Hunt has made no secret of the fact that he his priority is restoring the Conservatives' economic credibility, and he thinks a key part of that is appearing fairly draconian. You know, the Iron Chancellor, I think he wouldn't be... He wouldn't, you know, he would have no problem if that label was suddenly attached to him. And he'd throw the nurses metaphorically under a bus in order to maintain that appearance. You know, he has said that, yes, it might be a politically easy choice, but sometimes politically easy choices aren't the ones that, um, you know, aren't the right ones to make. I mean, I think he's wrong. And I think most people in government and most Tory MPs recognise he's wrong. Wrong as a political calculation. You don't mean morally wrong. You mean the point is that that, that's not going to help him politically. It's not for me to judge the morals of it, but certainly as a political calculation, I think that they are increasingly finding not just the public, but their own MPs want them to resolve the issue of health workers and reach some sort of settlement. Right, so let's talk about another uh, way that the government arguably has thrown a spanner into the works and really making its own political position even more difficult. And that's the anti-strikes legislation that was introduced to the House of Commons on Monday. First of all, just run us through by way of a reminder the main things that are being proposed. So this is um, a decision to bring in a statutory minimum service level for some key public sector workers, and I think it's about five different sectors, including transport, ambulance, fire, um, nurses, um, ed- or health generally, and education. And staff are asked if they're going to strike that they need to provide a minimum level of service. The government calls it minimum safety levels. Obviously, that's a sort of a political ploy to make it about public safety. Um, in order to make sure that these key public sectors can continue operating. The issue, of course, is that um, that potentially prevents workers' abilities to strike and leads to other sorts of action, including everything but strike, potentially over a longer period. And until the legislation comes in, and it could take some time, like we're talking a year, then you might see an escalation in industrial action as unions protest against it before it's too late. Yeah, so the price of the anti-strike legislation is more strikes in the short term. In addition, it, it gives the opposition a very easy attack line, which is that I think one of the implications of, of the of the legislation, I think this is in there explicitly, actually, it's, is that if you defy a specific instruction to work on a strike day, you then are open to being sacked, right? Absolutely. So you have the spectacle of the Labour Party, therefore, saying that, that we, the Conservative Party used to clap nurses and now it wants to sack them. That's yeah. its attack line. It's an easy attack line, isn't it? And, you know, there's obviously that, that element of truth in it. Now, what, what the government is saying is that they don't want to have to use the power. Uh, but, you know, it's all very well saying that. We've had this with the education it's strikes. of laws people it's, say they don't want to use. No, exactly. And, and also, who does that put the onus on as well? Do you think it'll pass through Parliament in the, in the form that it's in at the moment, you know, in the, with all these pretty brazen confrontational proposals in it? It's the next stage, which is sort of the, the important one in terms of how this progresses. And by the next stage, I mean the House of Lords. There's already, uh, you know, angry voices off, shall we say, from the House of Lords and uh, the expectation that peers will want to seriously amend this and change this and aren't, aren't convinced by this piece of legislation and could hold it up for, you know, a year potentially. 
It might make it through the House of Lords, but it would be in a hugely amended form. And then, of course, you think, well, we're up against the next general election. The Tories are obviously wanting to use this to sort of make, to hammer home some political points at that point. But what have Labour said? They said they're going to repeal it. Aha, right. So you mentioned the Labour Party. Now, uh, people, particularly on the left, who don't like Keir Starmer, tend to say that he's just a sort of Blairite stooge and he can't take a clear position on anything. And the idea that he would sort of have an orthodox Labour opinion on any pressing issue is sort of inconceivable. And yet that's what he's doing on this, really. Yes, and not just this particular aspect of it, not just the minimum service level legislation, but also the 2016 Trade Union Act, which brought in various thresholds for strike action and a whole array of other um, issues which were regarded by the unions as an attack on their on um, their rights, on workers' rights. He's, Labour has said from the off that they would repeal that as well. It's not so, sort of sort Peter Mandelson politics, that, is it? That is That shows you that Starmerism is a bit more complicated, doesn't it? Well, I think we know it's a bit more complicated. It's just easy to kind of, because he is he is kind of, to, try, to use a Blairite phrase, triangulate on lots of other issues, aware of where his votes may need to come from at the next election, that it's easy just to say that he's he's moving purely um, as a result of, you know, winning votes rather than on the sort of substance of his beliefs. And, you know, what Labour has said, what he himself has said in speeches in recent weeks is that uh, this is the year, these are the next few months that we're going to find out a little bit more about what they actually would do if they make it into power, in addition to sort of repealing or altering any Tory legislation that that they might not be particularly fond of at the moment. Right, let's pause here for a minute. And next we will talk about uh, the fallout that has suddenly erupted between Rishi Sunak and his government and the Scottish government in Edinburgh. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back. In a huge move for the politics of devolution, this week the UK government in Westminster chose to block a Scottish bill from becoming law. Everyone listening will doubtless know what that is. Holyrood's gender recognition law would have cut the waiting time for legally changing gender, among many other things. But on Tuesday, the UK government chose to use what's called a Section 35 order, vetoing the bill from receiving royal assent. Joining me now is the Guardian Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks, who is in Glasgow or thereabouts. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that right, Libby? That's okay, right. I've got that bit right. Um, just talk us through, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, what is in this legislation? It makes Scotland the first part of the UK to have a system of self-identification for people who want to legally change their gender. 
Uh, it removes the need for a psychiatric diagnosis of gender dysphoria in order to obtain this gender recognition certificate. Uh, it also extends the application process to 16 and 17 year olds for the first time. And it also reduces the waiting time that somebody has to be living in their required gender before they can apply. It reduces that from two years to three months or to six months for those aged 16 and 17. And when it was passed um, at the end of December, it was hailed by the Scottish government as a historic day for equality. I should say it was supported by all parties in the Holyrood Parliament, aside from the Scottish Tories. Uh, it passed by a majority of 88 to 33 and obviously you know, was welcomed uh, by equality campaigners, but but there are you know, ongoing concerns about a number of aspects of the bill, uh, particularly concerns about abusive males potentially taking advantage of the new system, and also uh, a lot of concern about its potential impact on UK equality law. Do you think that um, when this legislation was conceived and passed and so on, politicians in Scotland, most notably Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, were expecting this to happen. In other words, was there, was there an element of sort of deliberate politicking somewhere in all this? I think there was there was definitely a, a suspicion that some elements of the bill would, would end up in court. I think there was more a, a thought that one of the gender critical women's campaign groups up here might bring a challenge as they have done to previous pieces of Scottish government legislation around transgender rights. I think I think to be honest, this this particularly the use of this order, the Section 35 order, which has never been used before in the history, the entire history of devolution, I think that did come as as a shock to those those in government. Having said that, a shock can also be an opportunity. And um, we shouldn't forget that just the, the weekend before all this kicked off, the National Executive Committee of the SNP was meeting, discussing its proposals to run the next general election as a de facto referendum. And then suddenly there's a much cleaner and uh, neater way of uh, distinguishing oneself from the UK government and uh, calling uh, out outrageous fronts to Scottish democracy. But it's not the issue necessarily that one would have expected to be at the centre of a showdown between the SNP and the Westminster government, is it? In the sense that um, there might be a bigger political dividend, a much bigger political dividend for, for Sturgeon and the SNP in putting something like the welfare state or taxation or something about the economy, right, at the heart of a big showdown with Westminster, not an issue like this, you know. I think I think one has to one has to sort of look at it his, historically in, in, in that, you know, six years ago when Sturgeon first proposed this reform, could could she have foreseen the escalating global culture war that there is now, you know, particularly around transgender rights. I, I don't think so. I think as far as she was concerned, it was an incremental change. It was, you know, part of the Scottish government's uh, progressive legislative programme on equalities. But but very much, as I said, incremental, you know, not not something that was going to kick off this sort of extraordinary constitutional collision. And what are, and what are her options or their options, the Scottish government? What are their options now? 
I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has already said that she thinks it's inevitable that this is going to end up in, in court, meaning that the Scottish government will want to judicially review the, the decision to use the Section 35 order. Currently, Scottish Labour and UK, UK Labour too are, are pushing for the two governments to, to get around the table and um, also calling for the EHRC to issue some guidance on, on some of the more problematic areas of the bill in, in the hope that that might give the two governments something to, to discuss. But um, Shona Robison, the Scottish government social justice minister who steered the bill through Holyrood, has already said that, that really she believes that the UK government wants to fundamentally change the substance of the bill and that she's you know not not up for having a, a discussion around that. So in other words, this is gonna this is gonna rumble on in a very sort of uneasy, tension ridden way for quite a while, isn't it? Yeah, I think we could be looking at a at a very lengthy court battle, particularly if if this, you know, inevitably ends up in the Supreme Court. And amidst amidst all of this, let's let's not forget who is or ought to be at, at the centre of this the small minority of, of transgender people in Scotland who were, you know, planning, expecting this change to, to come through uh, in in the near future and now are yet again having to wait while lots of other people who don't necessarily know very much about their lives or, or their needs have uh, lengthy and frequently shouty conversations about them. Thank you so much for joining us, Libby. Lovely to see you. Pippa is still with me. You were listening to that conversation, Pippa. And let's sort of um, start where Libby left off, really. She was talking about the, the fact that perhaps what gets lost in the middle of all this are the, the voices of trans people themselves. And, and, and that, in that sense, they will see it as another instalment of so-called culture wars and, you know, the voice of this very, very loud element of the modern Conservative Party that, that thinks there is political capital in kicking off about those things. And that's the way some people see it. Other people say that it so happens that this is about trans rights, but fundamentally this is something that was kind of always going to happen, which is about the reality of devolved political systems and what happens when one part of the devolved political system, which is to say um, Holyrood in Scotland, passes a piece of legislation which conflicts them with legislation on the statute book as far as Westminster is concerned. And so it happens to be trans rights, but it could have been any one of several things. Both things can be true, right? Yeah, and that's absolutely the point here. I mean, Libby talked about political opportunity as far as the SNP was concerned regarding all of this. But it also can be said for the UK government, the Conservative government, that there are those people within this government who do regard this through the prism of a culture war, and uh, see the opportunities they think politically, both in Scotland, where polls before the Scottish Parliament passed this legislation suggested that not as many people were supportive of it as the SNP might have predicted, but also from a UK-wide perspective, whereas we've seen they've been very keen to, uh, not just on transgender rights, but on issues like you know historic statues and a whole host of other things, um, they've been perfectly relaxed about pursuing culture wars in order to shore up their voting in what they regard as some quite key areas. Right, three sort of very blunt questions follow on from all that. The first one is about Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, and um, Rishi Sunak himself. Which one do you think they are as regards seeing it as a constitutional issue or as a cultural issue, or if it's both, how does it sort of fall, do you think, in their minds politically? So I think Rishi Sunak, in stark contrast to Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, is less of a culture warrior. He obviously doesn't feel comfortable 
pursuing those sorts of battles. However, he recognizes or he's been told by people in his number 10, not least a guy called Dougie Smith, who is a longstanding Tory culture warrior who's operating behind the scenes, was married to his policy chief or to Boris Johnson's policy chief, Munira Mirza, um, that, that there is some political capital to be gained from this. We saw that this during the Tory leadership contest, the first one against Liz Truss over the summer, where he fully weighed into the whole transgender right from a, from a, um, a very particular perspective. Uh, but it's not his instinct. A reluctant culture, war- culture warrior. He was still a culture warrior. Right? That is right. What about Alistair Jack? He seems to be less keen, outwardly anyway, and going out of his way to be seen as somebody who's chiefly concerned with the constitutional aspect. I think he has to, but also because of his role, but also that probably because of his role and as a, you know, let's not forget that it's, a, it's the Conservative and Unionist Party because of that aspect of it. You know, that is absolutely core to his beliefs as a Scottish Conservative. But... He was also a member of Boris Johnson's cabinet. So again, maybe he's a reluctant culture warrior, but there is still that element to it. Okay, another blunt question. Does this intersect with the Equality Act? So I think the problem with the Equality Act is that while the, the Scotland office has a responsibility to make sure that there is no... Um, jarring of legislation between uh, Scottish Parliament and, and the UK Parliament and the conclusion they've come to on this occasion is that it is a, there is a jarring of legislation. Um, they're refusing to publish the legal advice that they were given that helped them reach that conclusion and relying on the precedent of we don't publish legal guidance. And they just published this statement of reasons which didn't really make huge amount of sense legally. And that's why you're seeing lawyers, whether or not they agree with the substance of the issue, reaching quite different conclusions about whether it should have reached this point and whether the Section 35 order should have been imposed. You know, until we've seen that legal advice, it's very difficult to see what aspects of the Equality Act it comes up against. And while they give examples of prisons and schools and single-sex spaces, um, it in legal terms it's very difficult to come to I mean I'm not a lawyer but it's very difficult to come to a firm conclusion you kind of have to take them on their word and what do you think is going to happen next well I think the ball is almost certainly in the Scottish government's court right now they can either say we're prepared to amend this legislation further Downing Street said it would like them to do that and wants to have conversations with them about that no conversations are in the diary yet I should say and that if they can amend the legislation so it doesn't have what it regards as, as uh, negative effects on the UK legislation, then it can go ahead in its current form. But, but what Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP have said from the off at the beginning of this row is they are prepared to take legal action, judicial review, potentially ultimately the Supreme Court. How far that is a threat in order to get the UK government to kind of, you know, get around the table and reach a a happy conclusion on this for the sake, as Libby said, of you know, the transgender people who this is really all about and how much of it is actually a firm commitment to taking legal action and, and pursuing a constitutional standoff, which might conveniently also boost the independence cause. I think we'll, we'll find out in the weeks to come. Okay, talking of the independence cause, what do you think the politics of this are as far as support or not for Scottish independence are concerned? I mean, as I said to Libby, this is not necessarily the issue one would have expected to break open these questions of the relationship between Scotland and the Westminster government and so on. I think it's really important to preface anything, any answer to that with the reality that, as Libby mentioned this week, 
the Scottish government is marred in this sort of real predicament about whether the next election is going to be a de facto referendum or not. And actually, this is in some ways quite a convenient distraction from all of this. I'm not suggesting that's the reason why we've got to this point. But, you know, I, I think they're happy to get back onto the more comfortable terrain of talking about it being, in, you know, an assault on democracy. And it was a real shift that we saw, first of all, when the Supreme Court decision before Christmas about a second referendum, obviously it blocked Scotland holding a, a legal second referendum on independence, um, a real shift in the SNP response from talking about independence and the cause to talking about democracy, because they have established, they feel that that resonates with a lot more Scottish people and potentially the Scottish, the, you know, the waverers, the people that are not fervent nationalists and not fervent unionists, but somewhere in between and could be swayed because nobody likes their democratic rights being undermined. And particularly in this case, the advantage here for them is it isn't just the SNP that's arguing that case. It's Labour, it's the Greens, it's the Lib Dems in Scotland who say that the, that the Scottish democratic process has been undermined by the UK government. So I'd say almost certainly that will act in their favour. Nonetheless, it always feels like, like now there is something about the prospect of another Scottish independence referendum, irrespective of one's feelings about it. And I'm broadly sympathetic and supportive towards Scottish independence. It's the thing that never really materialises. Everything I read is all about, well, it looks like it's not going to happen when Sturgeon wants. It's going to be postponed a bit and kicked into the long grass. And so it goes. It feels very hard to see how there could be another legal Scottish independence referendum anytime soon. And Nicola Sturgeon had a series of tools in her armory and she's deployed pretty much all of them. The last one was the Supreme Court ruling and then whether the next election is de facto referendum or not. But that's not a, a legal result. And all the polls have told us consistently that while the support for independence sort of hangs in the balance, um, were there to be a poll tomorrow, the vast majority of Scots don't want to poll tomorrow. And part of that is because they feel, some of them, that the issue has been settled for a generation, as Nicola Sturgeon has said. And for others, it's because they don't want to see the sort of division and angst and that, that um, and in, you know, fighting within families and within communities that uh, unfortunately was sort of the negative fallout of the last of the independence referendum in 2014. So if I was a betting woman and I'm not, I'd say that Nicola Sturgeon's running out of road on this and we're not likely to see another independence referendum in Scotland for quite some time to come. It's of a piece, I mean, by way of a sort of closing thought, I suppose, this is of a piece with the state of British politics generally at the moment, isn't it? That between now and sort of 2025, things are going to go around in circles somewhat, aren't they? There's going to be a lot of latent tensions that just sort of sit there and as contrasted with the period we've just been through after the referendum where there was a great drama every week and a great showdown every fortnight, you know, and this constant sense of turbulence. That's not where we are now, is it? This is this is an era of sort of underlying unresolved tension. I think a lot of that, John, is because Britain, like many places, operates in terms of political cycles. And we're reaching the end, it feels to me, of the political cycle that has seen the Conservatives being in government. Now, you might have thought that it was going to come about in 2019, but Boris Johnson reinvented the Conservative Party. He made Brexit a huge issue at, that, at, that, uh, at the last election. And so the Conservatives kind of had an, a, another few years, which they might not ordinarily have had under Theresa May, should, had she been taking them into the next election. So it d definitely feels slightly end of days-ish that anything that the government does might be undone in 18 months' time by an incoming an incoming administration, that everything the government done, does is 
part of a calculation about what can be done ahead of the election to show people that they can offer a better future. Um, but that also balanced against the reality of what actually is going to get through and what could really make a difference. So it's that end of it's that end of political cycle feeling that makes me think that yes, we're going to see quite a lot of turbulence in, in the months and the next eighteen months, um, and actually very little resolution to any of these big conflicts that are currently about. End of days. End of this episode. You see what I did there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us, Pippa, and everyone else we've met on this travelogue around London today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahars and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.